Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Thank you for joining us today and a bright, hot summer's day in the UK. I tell you, wow, those temperatures are rising. So Liam, let me introduce you quickly. Before I do that, let me just introduce the podcast as the 100 Days and Beyond. The podcast is about post-merger integrations or the post-acquisition integrations, things that happen after the deal has been struck. The merger and acquisition, the the biz dev team or the team that goes out and does the deal making, goes out and hunts down those targets and does all the negotiation, the due diligence, and they put the deal together, they sign the paperwork, and then when once the deal is done, now the magic needs to happen because now we need to make the actual work, yeah, make the businesses work, make the synergy capture, create the value, and all those other things. But while the engine is running, and while you're probably going 100 miles an hour down the, uh, down the motorway, so, but Liam has got a very, very interesting story, and in fact, Liam comes from a, a probably relatively unorthodox for probably for the older generation, if you like, background, but I think it's an industry that it must be taken seriously. It's an industry that has literally just hit the world by storm probably over the last five years. So Liam, Liam McGreevy has joined us. He's from Elite Growth, Holistic Herb. Now that's very interesting because if you can think about herbs, there's a special herb out there that people tended not to advertise too much. It was one now that's become more medicinal. So that's sort of, I would say more in the background, but you're going to tell us more about that. But I'm going to just quickly read Liam's background. Just a few pointers here. Summary is leading EU healthcare and agri-tech executive. We're going to go into what agri-tech means. So I need to understand that I think for the audience sake. Building businesses around brand development and technical services, a science and compliance background leading into 11 years in the agri-tech industry of exceptional knowledge across all areas of the production and distribution, assisting in building global supply chain, helping many producers globally to understand regulation and market access requirements for the most highly regulated markets in the world. And we're going to try and unpack what that really, what you really are talking about there. I'm a progressive business manager and a market developer with 15 years experience in sales and marketing, technical and compliance manufacturing and distribution operations, as well as finance and business development. I've developed a unique skill set across construction, compliance, testing, horticultural equipment, distribution, livestock, nutrition. That's very interesting. Medicine production and distribution and regulator engagement. And Liam, welcome to the show today. You bring a completely different flavor to our show and I'm really looking forward to our episode today. I think you're going to bring something that's unique and special. And I want the audience to know about that. And I want you to, to just to share, tell us how you got into it if you want, and tell us how everything sort of panned out and where you are today and how did you get there? Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I guess I've had a I somewhat, as you said, unorthodox route into business, really. I started out as a science graduate and I worked in laboratory testing in the construction sector. Was in that for six years before being made redundant and sort of needed to find a new industry, a, a new opportunity and looked for sales roles on the advice of a friend. And so I got a job as a distributor, as a sales rep for a, a distributor of horticultural equipment. And that was in what we call a gray market. Most people that were in the end buying that equipment and at the retail end were using it to grow plants that weren't necessarily legal. So that was kind of my route into this market. That was back in 2008 and that sector grew quite rapidly following the recession, which I think is a reflection of the nature of that industry really. And how cannabis, if you like, plays a role in day-to-day life in many countries not just through 
gangs that are doing other things, but small individuals that are um, effectively feeding their families and paying their mortgages. So it's not what you'd expect to find. I think when you look under the hood of that industry, that's sort of what I saw. And over time, you know, I, through hydroponics, was involved in livestock nutrition for equine, the, the horses, and I'm sorry, for cattle, et cetera. Because of my science and technical background, I think I'm able to understand new areas of technology and sort of move from one area to another. And then once I kind of got my head into the sales and marketing, I don't think I've always been decent with words and good at writing so I can put a good pitch together. I can make it consistent and follow through from, you know, the origin of the product through to what it means and to be able to highlight the USPs, et cetera. So I was relatively successful in that respect. And then we were done to a new employer who was setting up a business and, you know, as the, the person that took over the company in the early stages, we grew it rapidly, but it was a lot of learning in terms of how to best manage a group of shareholders with, you know, somewhat different interests or expectations and all of that. So a lot of learning in that period. And then, you know, about 2015, 2016, the industry sort of started to emerge in a legal sense with, you know, CBD retail products. We were one of the first companies in the UK to import. And I was, you know, liaison with the home office here and they hadn't a clue what to do. <laughs> I was asking them if I could import the stuff and I could never get a straight answer. Uh, the health authority tried to class CBD as a medicine, which didn't really make sense. And so I ended up having a meeting with them and understanding the medical side. And because of my background in science and the compliance side of things, working with big corporate companies, the government side never didn't really phase me. Whereas in that sort of gray area, naturally a lot of people shied away from it. So I think that was a plus and that I went after it and sort of lent into it. And so we have several businesses in that sector across retail, medical, ingredient development. And I've worked with a number of companies in, you know, establishing the business, raising money and, you know, getting financed, doing acquisitions, et cetera. So, you know, it's an interesting sector. It's growing, becoming more mainstream year on year, both medically and in the retail space as well, which I think is good to know. And it offers a lot of opportunity for new businesses, the opportunity will be as it grows into the mainstream, when bigger companies look to, you know, for a fast route into the market, you know, who, how do they do that? Do they build or buy? And, and most of the time it's position that gets them, you know, either medically the, the IP for a clinical product or retail, you know, a brand that has a clear demographic and a well-established market and good distribution channel. It's very interesting as a product because a lot of investors, uh, you know, if you take the Warren Buffett methodology, which is, you know, only buy what you can understand. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. from an investor point of view, that's the one side of the continuum, if you like, yeah. then you've got on the other side of the continuum, the let's call it the tech investor. So it's SaaS and it's FinTech yeah. and it's all those high risk things that take years before they generate a revenue. They generate even a profit. I mean, yeah. I think, I don't know how long it took Uber to make money. I don't even know if they're making money yet, but I mean, that's yeah. another story. Yeah. Twitter, I mean, you take all those guys. I mean, I mean, you just look at that value that companies and, and that's essentially, you know, zeros and ones, some code. Yep. With this particular market, it is, let's call it one of the, one of the oldest, I imagine in terms of agri, not food production, but agri as in a production that's been happening for probably a very, very long time. You probably know better history than I do. Do you know the history of where it all comes from and all, all, all that? Very much. It's really interesting. I think it's actually more near term than most people would realize. I think if you go back to the, you know. For example, I live in, in the West Midlands in the UK. If you go to the Black Country Museum, just, you know, which is about 45 minutes from here in the pharmacy in, in the Black Country Museum on the shelf is a bottle of cannabis oil from the early 1900s. You know, it was a widely used product, I think under Henry VIII, I think the, the law stated that any land over a certain size had to commit a, a minimum of one acre of hemp production because hemp was used for fiber, for sails, for ropes, which is obviously the Armada was, you know, 
that was what led to the expansion of the British Empire. Mm. Um, and also paper, clothing, lots of other things. And hemp seed, you know, produces actually a low carb version of flour. So for things like flatbreads, you know, protein powders, that kind of thing. There are huge amounts of like lots of applications. <clears throat> the herd, which is the central part of the stock can be used for construction materials to create biochar. And so I think what we're the, in general, we're seeing a resurgence. So it was really the cotton industry. And that was, a, you know, a certain group of people that benefited dramatically from fast cotton that grew quite in the kind of Southern Americas or middle Americas. And they obviously had cheap labor, <clears throat> you know, with which to cheap or no, no cost labor. They just had to ship them in. I think those days. Right. So, which was, you know, pretty dirty, I guess, but at the end of the day, that's, it's a more workable material than hemp cotton, but you know, hemp has almost lost out on a hundred years of technological development in genetic engineering and, you know, manipulation of, of the, the material that so to make it a, a comparable. So I think we're going to see a resurgence. And also, I think if you look at paper, you know, paper mills, forestry, you know, there are lots of people that own huge amounts of land that control the supply of paper, you know, wheat and soy and all that stuff as well as a dominant, you know, like monoculture and food production, which isn't necessarily good for the planet either. You know, there's, it's a real industrial drive for certain people to monopolize certain areas of, of, you know, how we live our day-to-day lives. And hemp suffered as a result of that, unfortunately, we as a population have suffered as a result of not having these compounds in our system. We have what's called the endocannabinoid system within our body, which is a network of cell receptors that are triggered specifically by cannabinoids. Some of them we produce on our own. Some of them we have evolved in sympathy, I think with this plant and it's designed to be part of our system in some respect. So. Yeah, that's, I guess, a little bit of the history. And if you go back to the Narcotics Convention, I think it was sixties and seventies, that's not that long ago when, you know, the UN made it part of its, the control of narcotics. So really it's only sort of 60 years where it's been properly uh, prohibited as a substance in that respect. And that was a political maneuver, you know, by the US, I believe. I think that's not, you know, there are quotes from the relevant political, you know, the people at the head of that government at the time that demonstrate that it's, that's not a conspiracy theory. It's a fact. That's the background, but at the end of the day, it offers opportunity. And so when you talk about, you know, understanding what you're investing in, if I look at crypto, for example, it's something that's, you know, I understand to a degree what it is at its base, which is in effect, multiple databases all reconciling each other. I mean, you have to understand what the real application value is to understand if the business is viable or the coin or the token is viable is what's its real application and does it have utility? Ultimately, I think with this, everyone can understand that these, you know, there is a market for it recreationally, like it or not. And there is, you know, huge potential for the compounds that this plant produces for health and wellness. And also there are lots of industrial applications. So I think if you're looking at, you know, the cannabis or hemp sector as something to invest in, it's a huge growth area. That we're just at the start of, you know, a hundred year growth really in the kind of utility of this plant. Bear in mind as well, it's a carbon sink. So for every, I think, I can't remember if it's acre or hectare of hemp that you grow, you create, you're kind of sinking 50 tons of carbon and you can sell those on an exchange and certified and sell them. It's all right in that positive for the environment and for local commerce as well. So lots of positives. Yeah. I mean, tongue in cheek, who would have thought Henry VIII would have been Carbon neutral. <laughs> Absolutely. But ultimately you needed those solutions. It wasn't a global economy in the same way you know, back then as it is now. And to have those resources yourself, when we look at the current global economic situation, the West, if you like, you know, Europe and America and USA is, are realizing the strength and stability you get from having production of your own resources and be product in your own country while relying on other economies. You know, it's a double-edged sword. We've all been living off cheap product coming from China. We're starting to see the impact of that in our economies now. I think for me, the, I don't know, the, the cliche, history repeats itself, isn't it? I mean, it just goes full circle. Yeah. You might think you got short-term gain, you know, let's take the China example, but 
short-term gain often leads to long-term pain. I mean, we just have to look at Germany and Russia and, and getting the gas and oil. They were laying another pipe and all of a sudden it's no longer in vogue. <laughs> it's like <laughs> people are even questioning being locked down. You know, and now you go back a hundred years and, and now you say, okay, well, you know, the pharmacy, you could go into the pharmacy a hundred years ago and buy it off the shelf. And then for some reason it became illegal. And then it's been a lot of media hype and then it's been, you know, it's obviously got some really bad press. And then all of a sudden it's not such bad press anymore. You know, then now that the, it's almost like the truth starts to reveal itself. It just seems to, everything always flows and <laughs> ebb and flow. It seems to be circular. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, it, I, I, like it's hard with something like, yeah, hemp, it's different. It, it like, it's difficult to read that in the context of time, but yeah, it's sort of hmm. like monopolies, I guess, only last so long is the reality, you know, and I think as, as a citizenry, if you like, we should want sustainability, you know, we want security. I think we've been too, or too many of us have been too, I'm trying to think sort of led back, I guess, in regards to, you know, what the source of our fuels are, you know, where our food comes from, you know, all of that stuff and what the underpinnings are, you know, no one really thinks about subsidiaries and we talk about renewable fuels, a lot of people complain, I think about cost of renewables, they don't think about the fact that most fossil fuels are subsidized by about 60 to 70 percent by your government, you know. Yeah, there's always more to the story than what they're telling you. It's sort of hidden in the inside, if you like. Just need, I think, to be a bit more conscious of, you know, that's just, yes, it might cost a little bit more in the short term, but it becomes a self-fulfilling thing. You know, you have to think about the economy as a whole. It might cost you more to pay for this product, but it's going into a local farm that's hiring local staff. They can pay more for the local staff. That's a big problem right now. All the cheap sort of Eastern European labors, you know, they're struggling to get that back now. So they have to, you know, who's, I can tell you as, as a, I think a 12 year old child, I picked potatoes for a couple of summers. That's not fun. No, that's backbreaking work. I don't blame other people for not wanting to do that, but then if I had to, I would, right? If I had to do that job to feed my family, I would do that. But you know, it's a hard job to do and there's not a lot of hunger for that, understandably. But if you're getting paid a better living wage for doing so, you'd be more inclined to do it. And so I think that's in the bigger picture, you know, we need to think about that as a society, I guess. So just before we go into the integration side of things and the, the acquisitions and things taking place. It's just interesting you you mentioned crypto because that's another one, but um, mystical in its value. Uh, yeah, that's something that I don't fully understand. I understand blockchain and I understand that that they can probably use it, you know, for better purposes than creating some weird currencies that fluctuate incredibly. I, again, it's like one of those weird things where if you look at the the agri, and I want to talk about agri tech as you explain it, I just quickly want to. So you started at Bureau Veritas. Yeah. I mean, that's with the, with the ISOs and all that kind of thing. I mean, that must've been a great start for, for your later on career, isn't it? So it's interesting. I started, my, my first role was with, um, RMC or and SEMX acquired the business. So that was an in-house laboratory and um, doing all the testing and, and product development for SEMX in the UK. And I was there for four years and then moved to Bureau Veritas, which was more commercial. So that was a big shift, you know, to, to come from an in-house lab where it was fairly comfortable, you know, like, yeah, there was pressure, but it wasn't the same as when you move into that commercial world and look, I'd worked in retail stores and stuff as a, as a younger, you know, worked on the tails in the supermarket and all that stuff and worked in shops. And so I've done retail consumer facing, but it's different when you have, for example, a beer Veritas, you know, when you think about a massive industrial park. So, you know, before they start to build anything, they have to level it all. They have to do all the like layers of sub-base and clay and permeability and all that testing needs to be done. And you might be on a seven day turnaround for a lot of those tests, otherwise you don't get paid and um, well, the business doesn't get paid. So, you know, that's a different kind of pressure. So that was interesting to move into that sort of, into that commercial sphere with the certification and that, you know, businesses are relying on you to get the results out. Um, in order to keep the projects moving forward. Um, but also, you know, you're there as a fail safe for 
and their client ultimately that if the material they're using isn't correct, that, you know, it needs to be picked up in the testing phase. Cause if you end up, you know, with Semex, I think they was part of the M6 tow road, it was a huge road around bending your hair. And, um, you know, if you pick something up early on, then, you know, you don't go building the rest of the road when you've got a faulty material. Um, at the same time, the testing is there to protect the company that if something happens subsequently, you can show that you test the material and there must be something else at fault. So, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to work in that angle. And even from the perspective of road construction, like there's a lot involved in it. We all drive on the road every single, you know, a lot of us every day. You just don't really give a, a thought to the processes involved and, and the amount of work that that's doing for the infrastructure and the economy of the company is, or the country, sorry, is, is huge, right? And um, so there's a lot of work involved and a, a lot of, you know, it's big commercial activity and yeah, the, the certification side is interesting. But you mentioned the crypto and this is something that has sort of came to me through the pandemic was doing some trade and medical equipment. As a lot of people, I guess, are trying to do, we got some contracts in that fund. And, you know, it's really the transparency around certification for different companies and products and as they move around the world. And I think that's really where, for me, the utility of crypto or blockchain is in, in the transparency of transactions, um, uh, product exchange in hands, the origin, you know, verification, all that stuff, because it's an indelible record. And it's, you know, uncorruptible. So from that perspective, it, it has a lot of utility and I think certification and, and product origination. Um, whether it's useful as a, in itself, as a coin, I don't, you know, it, if you wanted to know all the different hands and all the different transactions that a coin was used in fine, but like, I don't really see that it has a, unless it's underpinned by something. So the U S dollar is underpinned by oil transactions, they, you know, people agree, we'll, we're going to use the U S dollar to buy and sell the oil and therefore it underpins the value of the currency. Well, there's something of tangible value that's that, 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 it, that it represents, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's not just code, yeah. you know, they have the in the country, you know, it's a country of what, 325 million people all spend dollars all day, every day. It's a big consumer market. So you've got mm -hmm. lots of transactions in the currency, currency and, you know, goods exchanging hands that, that sort of, uh, underpin a value. And then you have massive commodity transactions happening in the, in the same currency. So you have at the two ends, you have a lot of consumer activity, a lot of commodity activity that's helping to underpin on the, the value of, of the currency really, where people agree that that $1 is worth this much. Cause there's a lot of transactions happening. If the transactions slow down, then you go, well, is it really worth what it's. I want, I want to, I, I, the reason why I went this route was, um, I think to, to establish the credibility in terms of your, the depth and the breadth and the deep understanding of, of markets, of, uh, the agri environment. Even the history of certain things, I mean, you, you've got a really, really thorough understanding of, of your market. You've got a good handle on in terms of the, the entire sort of space that you move in. So you, you, this doesn't come lightly. This is not something, um, you know, you decided to, to sell a Coke and a can, of, uh, sorry, Coke and a packet of, uh, of crisps and, and, and this is it, you know, you, you, you actually come from, I mean, Bureau Veritas, that's, that's, that's. I mean, that, those guys are serious when it comes to their, uh, their accreditations and so on all the way through. And when I look at your career, I'm in hydro, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it comes to agri-tech. So let, let, let's go there and then we can start talking about sort of integrations and, and how a lot of that stuff now starts to filter into integrations or the acquisitions and integrations. Um, number one, agri-tech, number two, sort of those integrations and that, and then number three, if I remember, are we going to touch on how do you value? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the, the cannabis type of business, but I mean, that's, let's, let's leave that for the end. Let's, let's talk yeah. agri first. So I guess from, from an like agricultural technology is anything really as a broad scope that can, you know, cover the cultivation of vegetables, you know, tomatoes, cucumbers into, you know, livestock farming, anything that's you know, based around farming in effect is, you know, and is on the technological side. So 
that, in, that includes equipment that includes, you know, feed technology, fertilizers, all of that stuff. So, and um, over the years, like I say, I've, I've worked around, um, farming side with feed into livestock and it's again, one of these very undervalued, um, areas of the market. And I think something that as a society, people don't really value farmers enough in terms of what they do to feed us and, and how complicated that, that is. Um, but yeah, doing understanding and um, livestock feed and, and the value of it and nutrition, how it all looks is, you know, it's a complex thing itself. Um, and then moving into sort of commercial, um, horticulture, um, not necessarily just for cannabis, but specifically the last four or five years doing a lot of work around where people are getting licenses to build greenhouses and then trying to help consult for them so that they have an effective setup that can produce something that is a, a consistent medicinal product, which is extremely hard to do because of the nature of the plant. So yeah, a lot of years of experience across various elements of, of agricultural technology. Really. Yeah. And, and, and one, and, and an ed, and uh, let's call it an ad element of, of risk these days is obviously environmental impact, uh, the weather changes, et cetera. But we also looking at, at things like pollution and other types of waste There's about being regenerative, regenerative, as opposed to, you know, just discarding things, you know, try and use everything as opposed to throwing things away. Uh, there's just a complete a mindset shift. And it's almost a, it's almost a social shift, if, if you like, the way we think uh, about these things. You know, though, even those uh, horticultural, those greenhouses where you've got aquaculture, working with um, horticultural uh, setups, where, you know, you've got hydroponics. And I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And, and I saw something on TV the other, other night, and, and it was just a flash, and, I, and it just come back to me, is how they actually use methane to increase the speed at which plants grow. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was like, wow, I thought methane's the bad guy. It's like, okay, well now I get it. And in fact, it's not so bad. So it's, yeah. it's again, context. Oh, and, it's about balance. Is it like, exactly. with, like an, I'm a big fan of, of thinking about things in a balanced way. So because of my degree in biological oceanography, um, you get to, you look at all sides of the situation and, and, and you, you know, the sort of ecosystem mindset, mm. it's really obvious that, you know, you can't just pull one string and affect everything, you know, and, and expect that to, you know, to balance things. It's, you know, the way we're looking at sustainability at the moment, you, you need a, a sort of a, a network effect. You need to really understand more about, um, how the planet properly operates for me, if we're going to, you know, like this climate change and, and all of that. Having studied some of that, albeit 20 years ago, um, you know, it really data quality is important. Um, how much we're measuring, what we're measuring and how often and all that stuff is very important. But yeah, I think from a, from a sustainability perspective, from, I think, as I mentioned before, with, with our, with our economy here in the UK or in any country or any part of the world, you know, people are thinking about it a bit more. We've lived on cheap fuel for years. I, I don't understand how in any world it was right that we were basically sending carrots to China to be painted and cut and packaged and sent back here in the ship. I mean, that's mad, right? The fact that like we actually, you know, that happens, it's insane, you know, but, but, but that's the fact of cheap fuel to ship it around the place and cheap labor in China is averse to like, how can that be cheaper than paying something to do it in the UK? I don't understand that. It's no, that's the problem. So, so people are unintended consequences too, though, because that's, that's always the thing at face value. I think I, I like your approach of having a balanced view. I mean, uh, you, you don't always realize from at face value, if the accountants look at it, it's, yeah. you know, income, less expenses equals profit. You know, what's wrong with that calculation? But this is where companies are being made to think about their carbon footprint. And I think I'm not sure that it's, you know the right way to think about it necessarily, or that the mechanisms where, you know, people are trading, you can, you know, buy carbon credits from somebody who's farming him to offset your, like, it, it doesn't necessarily discourage you particularly from doing what you're doing, but at least you're funding, uh, you know, a carbon sink activity. So 
I get the, you know, it, it sort of makes sense, but whether it's sustainable long-term in that model, I don't know, but yeah, you know, for, for, from that perspective, we need to, you know, think reasonably about, um, what, what, what makes more sense longer term. And as you say, you know, they're on, what's the pollution associated with the ships and truck, you know, ships backwards and forward, carrying all these vegetables and all the rest of it. So people have been employed, you know, that money has gone into the economy. They're feeding their families and mortgages. That's a plus at the same time, you know, there's, there's pollution and, and other consequences around all that stuff moving around that, that doesn't necessarily need to. So. Yeah. And, and often the politicians get it wrong. I mean, I, again, you know, we can probably have a, have a different conversation around politicians, but, but sometimes, um, uh, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary solution. So, so what happens is they come to some sort of mediated agreement that's, that, that appeases both sides and both sides are sort of okay with the results sort of, okay, we'll do carbon credits to make, you know, to make the, the green people happy and, and for the people making money, you know, they also sort of happy and yeah, everyone can just get along. But in fact, sort of it's, it's gonna, it's probably going to become worse a, over time. If we go, if, if we, if we sort of shift now into the acquisition of, of, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's down as simple as, as land that's, that's, um, uh, can do that kind of, a, is it agronomy is, do you call it that? Is that the yeah, agronomy, would be, yeah. agronomy in terms of the plant, the planting, um, uh, or arable land, mm -hmm. uh, the right kind of land of obviously the right kind of climate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, acquiring the land or acquiring a, a, an entity that's already producing or, yeah. or setting something up or, mm. or even processing and processing plants and, uh, and so on. And then all these, then the ancillary, ancillary, uh, industries there that support those in terms of machines and equipment and so on. And then there's distribution, uh, and, and packaging and, and you name it. So, so, so there's different aspects to this industry, just like any industry. Just, just sort of touch on a number of those and, and, but with a, with a slant on, on M and A and, and, and integrations. Yeah. So I guess if you're, um, if you're, if you're someone that's looking at, you know, like getting into this sector and you think we're, 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 you know, where do we get into this? You know, it, given my experience over the years and what we do with our businesses now is like, we've really tried to focus on the areas that we think have the most a growth in value or offer the most value with growth. And, you know, like we talked about farming being a hard game and all the rest of it and, and, and underappreciated and it is, and it's always at the bottom of the chain. So where we focus our energies are on, um, building brands in markets. You know, if you have that retail revenue, um, albeit through distributors as well as so a wholesale then, and you have the brand control, you can build IP around that, then you have something that's you know, you have a higher point of a higher price point, um, mm -hmm. and sort of more in market control. And I think on ingredient technology as well, where improvement in absorption of active ingredients is, is something that's, you know, offers a lot of value. So that's kind of where we tend to focus our energy now, just over the years of, of trying to understand where the real value is, but, you know, if you wanted to uh, get into if you're in horticulture or you're in form, you want to get into this space, you know, depending on how you want to approach it and from a market perspective, the retail market is, um, lower barrier to entry in terms of licensing for cultivation of industrial hemp. Um, but ultimately is, you know, the price point is lower per product or per milligram of active ingredient. If you want to look at it that way. Um, and if you're looking to acquire a facility that is cultivating then, you know, there's a lot to think about in terms of the licensing, the teams doing it, like how effective are they producing, you know, are they maximizing the facility? Um, is it, is it hanging on sort of one, one or two people that are really key in terms of understanding how to grow the plant really well, um, understanding the quality management systems. There's a lot to think about when you're, if you're looking to acquire a business of that nature. Um, in terms of the team that are, you know, the business that's there already, who's involved, who are the key people, and, um, you know, do they want to stay in the business and all of that stuff. 
Um, cultivating informatical obviously has, has a higher barrier to entry because you need narcotics licenses um, and has much more robust quality management systems. So to kind of start that from scratch uh, is a long road. And, um, you know, I've been talking to people since 2016 that have been on that path. Um, you know, I've got a, a relationship with a guy in Portugal who's just about to come to market now after sort of three or four years of um, starting off, you know, building a facility in Portugal. So it's a long road, and um, but it potentially has value. And um, it's just going to be limited in the future. So a lot of these people that started off with cultivation facilities are now looking to to buy into um, brands that are in the market so they've got that retail revenue under a great business, if you like, because ultimately that's where you know, we think the real value is in the market show. And that I think the fact that the people that started out thinking we're going to grow loads of weed and I thinking, oh, you know, what really matters is a good brand and, and sort of like uh, uh, having consumers coming back for your product every month want to buy again and again. It, because it's a repeat purchase, isn't it? It's a, it's an ongoing purchase. If, if it's medicinal, um, you know, for whatever reasons they, they, they have it, they would have it on a regular basis. So coming, um, just coming back to, to what you've just been saying. So in essence, it's following standard economic or, or, or business models. You, you know, you got your producers, you've got your, uh, your yeah. manufacturers or whatever it is, you've got your distribution channel. But at the end of the day, it's, it's who adds the most value probably gets paid the most, um, in terms of the market perception yep. uh, and who's good, who's best at marketing. <laughs> yeah, ultimately that's right. And, and so for me, um, having, you know, been in distribution since 2008, you know, we have a huge amount of experience in validating the supply chain um, structuring a portfolio of products as a distributor, you know, you can have two or three products that are in this, that do exactly the same job, but you know, you have your good, better, best is, is, you know, and you can have that across every different sector. Um, uh, but it, it has to be the right message, the right brand, the right price, you know, the right margin, all of that stuff. Uh, and, and the, the work that you put into launching those brands is, is, you know, can be costly and is important to have the right margin structure behind it. And then have the right relationship with the supplier that's going to support you and see it as a, a kind of a joint operation, whether it's their brand or your brand or a co-branded effort. There's lots of different ways to do that. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's, it is, it does follow traditional metrics, whether, whether it's medicine, whether it's food, whether it's cosmetics, you know, you have a farmer that produces a plant, then you have an extraction facility that extracts the active ingredients, whether that's in the farm or not. Most people that are doing cannabis farming are doing extraction. In the US, there are people that are doing huge amounts of tolling. So they take the flour, they extract the oils, they either sell it on or give it back to the farm to sell the oil. Um, you know, so yeah, and then you take the oil and you can either use that as a bulb or you can refine it again into an, an individual compound isolates, um, et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's, there's nothing particularly new in that respect. I think that's the thing where people come in and go, mm, you know, this is going to be different. It's not different. You know, active ingredients or, or some of them are effective for certain things, or they sometimes they work better together, potentially, you know, think called the entourage effect. So it's understanding at, at the end, where the values are said is in what distribution, creating a brand that, that is effective and it means that people, um, and, but understanding the product is key to that as well. And, and, you know, there's a lot to run. Look, the cannabis plant produces somewhere in the region of potentially about 150 different cannabinoids, you know, so THC is the one that gets you high. CBD is the one that's sort of popular now as a non-psychoactive, you know, anti-inflammatory and all of that stuff. But then you have CBG, CBC, those are both similar to CBD in their effect, they're non-psychoactive. You have CBN, which is a psychoactive controlled in the UK, but not in the rest of Europe, you know, potentially has very strong effects for, um, pain relief, for sleep, for anesthesia, you know, and that's just five and, you know, we're a hundred, you know, over a hundred more that will have, you know, either similar or slightly different effects in some form of utility. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to specialize in producing certain cannabinoids. 
um, and to bring them to market for, you know, with, with a certain brand or a certain effect or whatever that might be. Um, so yeah, I think it's to say, it's not necessarily that it's, um, I think where, where it is different, I guess, is that this is something that bleeds, you know, across medicinal to wellness and sort of, you know, therapeutics into having a good time, <laughs> you know, ultimately, which, you know, there aren't many things that kind of like really like bleed across all of that. So yeah. some people think wine could be, could be like that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I, I do, there hundred percent people use alcohol as, um, stress relief, you know, um, boredom relief, whatever, you know, and, and sort of, um, uh, yeah, sleep. Like people do use alcohol as a, I guess, a remedy or, you know, a therapeutic to a degree. And um, if they want to hide from their problems, you know, and even that in itself, you know, it's psychological anxiety reducing. So it's not the substance itself. It's, it's, it's people that, that could either use it properly or abuse it. So, 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 so coming then to, to valuations and, and based on all, everything that you've said now, um, let's say I'm looking at a, a business. I mean, theoretically it's better to be higher up the supply chain than, than at, at the sort of growth level if possible, but depends on how you put the business together, but the same fundamentals apply. Are you going to look at it in terms of who's the management, sales, marketing, operations, distribution? You're going to look at the same sort of things. Are you going to look at a brand and brand value, assets, liabilities, et cetera? It's the same valuation principles. How big is the market? You know, how, what is the uptake? Is it a growth industry? Isn't it? For me, it's probably a growth industry. Um, uh, and, and, and so I, I think from an investor point of view, you look at this as, as, yeah, this is probably, you know, I don't understand blockchain, uh, or I don't understand cryptocurrency. I don't really tech, you know, high tech, fintech, this tech, that tech is a bit too far for me. Uh, I don't necessarily want to go into too, like engineering or anything like that. And if I'm looking at it, at, at something that's maybe different, it's still got the same business principles. So if you do have a bit of business background or you, or you are a practitioner in business, same principles apply. So, okay, we've put that one to bed. So, so now in terms of, uh, let, let's, let's go through a bit of history around sort of acquisitions and things that you've done, uh, and, and. And give us, you know, or, or whatever you, you know, give us a case study or two. I mean, it doesn't have to be acquisitions, but it could be anything. Could, give us a case study or two. I mean, as we shift now towards uh, the integration side of things, and 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 especially now because of your market knowledge, your broad experience across distribution, marketing, branding, um, and 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 even all the way back to the actual <laughs> the growing of it and so on. Give me, give me a bit of a, a sort of one or two ideas, case studies, stories that you've got for us. Yeah. I mean, I guess it wasn't, I didn't think it was initially, but when I worked for RMC and um, they were bought out by Semex. And so like, I was very low down the chain, obviously as a technician in the lab, but you know, we had to merge together with, there was a, like, we worked on, on one side of the business. There was a similar lab that worked on the sort of the concrete side of the business. And obviously rationalizing everything, they were like, we're going to put these two labs together. And so that, that was an interesting, you know, experience, uh, having to, we had to move location, all that stuff. So just as an employee and um, of, in a fairly big company, you've gone through that process where you're being meshed together, you got new structure, new facility, you know, and all the rest of it is, is it was an interesting to go through, I guess. Um, in more recent times as a, as an entrepreneur, I've been involved in, um, you know, as I said before, I've had you know, investors, um, part of our business happens to grow the business, invest the money and I'm looking at doing mergers and acquisitions and, um, we've sort of always, I think valuations we talked about, you can look at it and as in, this is a normal valuation metrics in, in this kind of sector, people have inflated valuations because it's seen as this, this huge growth into the future. In the same way that tech companies were, I think that's sort of deflating a little bit now, but as an entrepreneur, like for ourselves, where you create, um, a certain amount of value with a, with a really successful brand, for example, leading early stage, you know, you want a little bit of a premium if you're going to 
sell the business to somebody else or merge in with somebody else, you know, there are two things. One, you know, you want to, you want to get something out of it, at least, you know, if it's been a couple of years and you want to make, you know, some cash in your pocket, if you like to kind of make it all worthwhile, at least a little bit initially. And then with some, with I come in the future. Um, and yeah, so I think like that's really important to, to think about when you're, if you're looking to sell a business is on the other side of it is, you know, who are the people that you're selling to, or you're looking to merge with or integrate with is, you know, isn't a good fit. The management team, you know, are the goals the same? Um, have they got the funding really that you want that, you know, if, if it's like really small early stage businesses, there's a lot of, you know, people that say they have money, they don't have money or, you know, they're living on the credit cards. <laughs> Well, or, or, you know, is the money really there? Um, when it comes down, when it, when it comes to the crunch and, you know, they may just want your revenue, for example, if you've got a certain amount of, you know, you've got a good revenue profile and, and not a lot of debt, they go, great, we'll buy this revenue. Then we can go and raise more money down the track. <laughs> that happens a lot too. And so you just have to be really careful when you're, if you're on the sell side that, you know, you're going to get what you need as, as a shareholder, um, as an individual personally. And that, you know, the business you're merging into has a similar, um, goal, um, as yourself and, and has the right funding structure and you can work with that team going forward. I think when you're on the acquisition side, um, you're looking more at, you know, again, are the goals shared, um, are these people, you know, this, the business as it sits that you're buying, is it something that can grow? Cause ultimately you're in you want to acquire it to be able to grow it. Um, ideally, so if you're doing that, you know, does the business have the, the scope to grow in the market, as you mentioned, you know, market capture or market value, it, it is a growth sector. So there's growth to be had, um, is the, is this the right brand team business to, to be able to capture that growth, you know, if you give it sufficient funding. So I think on both sides, it, it's, mm. there has to be alignment of, of goals of mindset and, and ability to, to work together. Um, and like, you never know un, until it's done and it's done, whether or not you really get with people and you get into the hard conversations sometimes yeah. like, you know, wh where are your budgets going? I want to do this project. Well, I think that's right. You know, those are the hard things, but it, I think if you do them in other conversations in the right way and you keep the end goal in mind and, and everyone's um, on board with getting to that end goal, then we can usually work through those things. And that's how most, you know, successful founder teams develop is that you have a bit of yin and yang, a bit of balance in the team, but everybody's able to kind of put their ego to bed at times and, and, you know, buy into the group, you know, wherever we think is right as a group, then usually it'd be successful. And that's the same post merger really, or post acquisition is as long as you keep that ethos and um, then, you know, generally be successful, but going back to it, like I mentioned before, in, in with cultivation businesses, particularly it's very sensitive and growing cannabis is, is a, it's a weed. And so it tends to grow quite well on its own in the wild. It's, it's you know, but when you put it in a greenhouse and you try to grow up with controlled conditions and um, there are a lot of things that we go wrong. So humidity causes problems, pests cause problems light periods affect the amount of ingredient that you get from the plant. So, you know, you want, ideally you want someone who knows what they're doing and that's really hard. Some of those people are a bit rough around the edges is probably the best way to put it because of the nature of what they've been doing for a long time, they have experience. Um, and you know, when they start to have this clash between sort of, you know, gray market people and, and corporate people. Um, and so that's something to, to think about with. Like, but that probably happens in a lot of early stage businesses where founders are, you know, very passionate and aggressive and all the rest of it. And then you have, you know, maybe a, a, a fund or, or investment company that's, you know, a, a not quite so, you know, bullish. About well, it. I mean, you could even look at established businesses. I mean, you could look at electricians, plumbers, uh, lifts and escalator installers. I mean, you could look at any, any of the smaller sort of, let's call, I don't know, really, I don't want to offend anybody, but you have sort of the really small cowboy style man in a van type of environment, yeah. um, you know, very trade orientated. And then you've got on the other end, people that run it like a proper business, people that run it like a, 
with proper systems, processes, all the checks and balances, employ the right kind of um, knowledge and experience into the business. So when you're looking at, at integrations or even acquisitions in the space, you really want someone, at least one or two people that know what they're doing. <laughs> at least a few technical people that stay behind. I mean, if you know nothing about cannabis or anything like that, you, you do need a few experts. You need people that, that understand the regulations and things around it. I want to come quickly back to your, um, cause in the last few minutes, I just want to sort of just switch gears a bit and just talk a bit about your companies, mm -hmm. um, holistic herb CBD, your director 2018. Uh, to, to now, and then elite growth director, um, a year and two months, a little bit shorter, but co-founder, director, CEO, something I just want to, I want to read it and maybe we can just expand on that. So just tell us a bit about the companies, but yeah. in a paragraph you mentioned as CEO, I'm responsible for working with the board of directors and the management team to set the vision and strategic direction of the company, ensure we have the resources to deliver our goals and within, uh, within an early stage business, actively drive the execution. And this is, this is key for me, commercial partnerships, agreements, financing, and the M and A activity. So one, one thing a lot of people don't realize that is if you getting into a commercial agreement, a partnership of some sort, you, you have a joint venture or some kind of agreement that you not necessarily sh swapping shares for money or whatever it is, but you've agreed to work together. I mean, it could be up and down a supply chain. It could be competitors yeah. working together, sharing things, whatever that is. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of integration. I mean, I just, you, you want to maybe just expand on that first a bit about the two companies and then just expand a bit about how, you know, what, what's important around those. Yeah. So holistic herb is, um, yeah, that's been, like you said, founded in 2018, really it's a relatively small team, myself and two other people, Jason and Andy, and you know, we've managed to kind of build and maintain the business. We've got one main client really, which is Holland and Barrett, who are, you know, the largest health food retailer in Europe. And that's been, that's sort of like the basis of the business really. And we're looking to expand that now. We've had some novel food regulatory, um, I guess, issues that, that have slowed everyone down here in the UK and that's hopefully resolving now. So we're seeing some growth, which is great. Um, and it's just about how, you know, amongst the three of us, you know, we, we make the decisions on a week to week basis, uh, in terms of how we want to grow the business. So that's pretty straightforward. It's not, you know, it's not complicated. There's not a lot of people involved. Um, it's a small team and, and the three of us are the board. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, on the growth side, it's a bit more complex in terms of the number of people involved. Um, and it's, you know, a lot more on the medical ingredient side. So, you know, the partnerships are crucial in terms of working with companies that have technology that we can bring through to, to run clinical trials. Um, and, and in terms of a gradient technology that improves, you know, bioavailability, uh, to bring that to market, these are kind of longer term. Uh, projects that, that take a lot of time and effort and obviously we need investment for as well. So, but that ultimately provide huge amounts of value long-term. And so you need people with the right licenses, you need people with the right experience and in order to be able to execute on, on your goals. So, you know, you can have a good product and, you know, do you have the license to bring it in? Do you have a, a physician that's willing to prescribe it and, and a clinic that's willing to run the trial with you and, and all of that stuff? So yeah, there are a lot of bits and pieces there that, that sort of uh, bring this thing together. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just part of, as I said before, was like in a distribution business, I think wholesale distribution is massively underrated and most people don't you know, really think about it that mm -hmm. much as far as the supply chain is concerned. It's, you know, it's, it's a really, um, it's a really difficult thing to do in some respects. Um, you know, to sort of manage a portfolio of products, you're responsible mm. for the supply chain, you're responsible for brand management, marketing activity, you know, you're, you're really like you're affected right the way through, um, and you're responsible for all of that. Um, but it is a very fulfilling, um, role and, you know, you can make a lot of money doing that if you do it right. So, which is, you know, on, like in one of our businesses, we're talking to a lot of these companies that, you know, you take SPAR which is a retail brand that most people will know, convenience stores and 
mm. Petra four courts and, you know, um, they have distribution businesses that manages, that manage them on a, um, on a regional basis. And they have some of the stores they own themselves. Plus then they have, you know, hundreds of other stores that they're distributing to. So that's kind of, you know, th th their supply, they're doing huge revenues and, and it's like businesses that nobody knows. People know Spar, but you don't know the distribution business behind them. It's, it's actually doing a lot it's of It's massive and, and it, it, it works. I mean, I, if I think of that and co-op and, and you see the vans and, and the, the delivery and, and there's always fresh food around and there's always, you know, and, and the shelves are, are just in time in terms of packed. I mean, they only have that amount of shelf space. I mean, it's, 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 it's massive. I mean, the whole um, distribution business. So, so I want to, I want to now just go to a little bit more personal, Liam, um, we've come into the end of the podcast and I, I could spend, I could spend hours with every one of my guests and then you, one of them, um, uh, tell us a bit about how do you, I mean, this two businesses, complex environment. An industry that requires a, probably a lot of talking, a lot of negotiation, a, a lot of relationships that need to be built, maintained, you know, and, 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 and sort of expanded continuously. Tell us how do you keep, sort of keep your head, you know, <laughs> in the in a straight, how do you keep sane in, in this crazy world that we live in? You know, do you, you know, what do you do out of work, et cetera? I mean, how do you, how do you balance it? Is there such a thing? <laughs> And uh, it's really tough, I have to say, um, and it's something that, uh, I think since the pandemic hit and, and, um, I, I guess for reference, like I've always been a hard worker. I've always been a competitive person, played a lot of sports growing up and, you know, played Gaelic games and, and football, you know, to a half decent level. So I've kind of got that competitive streak in me. Um, and you know, I, I when I moved from laboratory work, working for big companies, you know, went through that Samex sort of merger and then bureaucratic being made redundant, you realize that working for big companies seems pretty stable, but you know, it's not necessarily always that stable. You, and my wife worked for a local government. She got made redundant, you know, those are supposed to be jobs for life. Um, so, you know, I think when I get into the, um, the distribution business and sales and marketing, and, you know, performed very well, I started to understand, you know, the opportunity. And I saw the guys that owned that business do pretty well out of the growth. They went from five million, five million a year to 20 million a year in four years. And, you know, there was four of them that were shareholders and directors and just thought, you know, can I do this basically? And, and after four years there and getting this opportunity with the new business, I thought, you know, maybe maybe I can, or it certainly was an option to learn and grow into it. And so over the years, like I've always had that hard work ethic. Um, and then as you start to realize your ability to do this stuff yourself, then, you know, you're, you're really going after it and you, you're kind of committed to making it work. So there's an element of, you know, you don't want to fail, I guess, you know, so you'll put everything into it. Um, but also with the hard work ethic, I mean, I like to understand the the technical stuff behind what i'm doing so i do tend to do a lot of reading on the phone my wife hates my phone not so much now which you certainly used to um, <laughs> you know like sitting around at the weekend or on a friday night whatever you know every night of the week at watching tv i'd be reading stuff on the phone and it's not necessarily for pleasure it's just interesting information about the market about new technology whatever it might be it helps you kind of understand things on a slightly deeper mm -hmm. level and even just general you know business um, articles or about, you know, right ideas around running a business, managing people, you know, inspiring people, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so I consumed a lot of information over the years. And I think w when I was, you know, doing crazy hours for, for years and years, trying to, you know, build these businesses and, um, when the pandemic hits and um, it actually got even crazier, which is because of these sort of PPE transactions, mm. which we, we got, a, you know, we did a little bit of business and that was not, wasn't, you know, huge, but it was enough to keep our heads above water for a little while there. And, um, it was doing even crazier hours because we were dealing with people in China and people in Europe and the US. And it was like, everyone was panicking. Um, and when that slowed down, I just sort of took a, took a bit of a breath and thought, you know, I need to really 
I was like 40, 41 thinking, you know, you can, you can sort of give everything of this, of yourself to this stuff and it doesn't necessarily always work out. It, it doesn't mean that you have to give up, but you know, I'm no good to anybody if I'm not healthy and I'm not here. So I think that's sort of my approach now is to, uh, is to try and be really productive in, um, in within a certain time frame. But to, to give myself, you know, personally the time to stay fit and healthy. Got a Peloton beside me here, so I use a Peloton. I've got a membership in the local gym. And certainly over the last, you know, six months or so, I tried to make a more concerted effort to build that into my life. And so I think with anything, um, success comes from um, repeated positive habits, you know, and it's about building those habits. Save your business, manage your business, or success in your business. Sales. That to me was with, when I first got into sales and that distribution business was about just repeat, you know what I mean? Do the right things on a repeated basis, follow up with your customers, let them know that you care about them, that you resolve on the problems. You can, if they ask for price and you get it back to you, just the little things and just repeating those habits. And that's the same with all areas of, of your business. And I mean, your, your personal life too, ultimately is trying to, you know, make those, those little habits consistent. So that's what I, that's, it is. You know, hectic at times, mm. and sometimes it gets really pressured. But you know, you don't. There's nothing of value comes for free. Ultimately, at the end of the day, and if you want, you know, financial freedom, and you want to be able to choose what projects you get involved in and when, and you, you need to kind of earn that freedom, I guess. So, yeah, you got to earn your earn your stripes, and and uh, I mean, if I could, if I could summarize um, some of the key traits. Uh, successful people like yourself, uh, you have a purpose, you know what you want, uh, you're drawn to that purpose, that purpose drives you. It's this, um, you know, the, the, the company that I established is called skillful pursuit. And that is the pursuit of those skills, the constant learning curiosity. Um, it, and the pursuit is, is, is this never ending journey, isn't it? You, you, there's always just one more thing to do. There's always just one more client to go and see you. Yeah. As, as a sports fan, like, you know, I'm a Manchester United fan, um, although there'll be a lot of groans, but like when, you know, the period when I was growing up in the eighties, they didn't really win very much. And, and mm. then when you get into kind of early nineties, all of a sudden they start winning. But that's about, you know, the characters of the people that were in the team over that period of time. and. You know, Roy Keane's a famous one, I guess, but, you know, it was very much a kind of, you know, on to the next one mentality is, you know, what's next. And I think, you know, for me, there's always, a, there are, are, there are always other opportunities and there are, are even with say holistic herb, you know, uh, we can expand, you know, when the regulation allows, you've got Europe, North America, South Asia is starting to come on stream for cannabis, which is really exciting, huge population. You know, South America, there's lots of growth potential there, you know, if it's, if it's sort of done and funded in the right way and all of that stuff. So it's a case of how much do you want those, you know what I mean? So it depends on whether you're happy to kind of, you know, take a check now, or, you know, do you, do you want to be a, you know, Johnson Johnson, you know, Procter and Gamble brand Gillette, do you want to be a Gillette or do you want to be, you know something, whatever, the one that didn't make it. So uh, there's no right or wrong. It's whatever, whatever drives you and whatever gives you that fulfillment that, that, that you need. Um, we've come to the end of the podcast. I mean, I could, I could probably spend another few hours with you, Liam, um, stay on the line. I just want to say goodbye to our audience. And then, and then from there, we, we can have a quick, uh, brief chat after that. So, so I just want to say goodbye to the audience. Thank you very much. Um, to everyone that's uh, that's that's dialed in today, and to all the followers of our of our Hundred Days and Beyond podcast, today was something different. Today for me was something special, and today for me was was an industry that a lot of people don't know and understand. But what was, what's evident is that it's the same as most the principles, and that are the same as all all the other industries. Some industries get good or bad press. Uh, regardless, it is still, um, a, it's still a business. It's still something that, 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 um, that's viable in terms of having a look at, uh, and, and if you're passionate about something, 
you're going to drive, you're going to be in it. And just like Liam said, you, you know, he, the, you can, you can decide where you want to go. And if you want to be big or small, I, th I think for me, today's episode was it's, it's dedicated to something slightly different to, to integrations per se, but it's slightly, it's dedicated more to an industry that's, that's, that's not as well understood, but there are different types of integrations. So I think the takeaway for me today, and especially for the, uh, M a, uh, the post merger integration or post acquisition integration people is that integrations don't necessarily have to happen after a, a sale or an acquisition. Integrations can actually happen when you're working together with others or other companies or other entities that have, um, that have the skills, the finance, the technology, the people, and so on, that you can bring people together to have a joint purpose, but you don't necessarily have to buy the company. However, there still is an integration. There's still people, there's still processes, there's still systems, and there's still intellectual property and that that needs to be integrated, put together, so you can again get the value creation and the synergy capture. Thank you very much for joining us on today's episode. Join us on our next episode of 100 Days and Beyond. Thank you very much for supporting our channel. And please click on the button to subscribe and look forward to the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Hi, everybody. This is Dudley again. And if you need help with a future or existing post-merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website, skillfulpursuit.com.